0: Hello and welcome to the Eco Chamber, brought to you by the team from the environmental policy magazine, The End Report. In this first episode of 2023, we'll discuss whether DEFRA has really kicked its water quality targets downstream, we'll take a look at a grizzly court case involving wildlife crime in deepest, darkest Dorset, and we'll examine why environment agency workers will be taking strike action later this month. Then, in this episode's deep dive, we'll look at how some of the country's biggest house builders are seeking to weaken biodiversity net gain reforms. After that, Alice and Simon will be along to talk about what they expect to see on the EU environmental policy front in 2023. So, without further ado, let's enter the Eco Chamber. I'm Jamie Carpenter, and I'm here with Pippa Neal and Tess Colley. Our first story of this episode's Big Green News section relates to news that broke just before Christmas. On 22nd of December, the Secretary of State signed off the Environment Agency's River Basin Management plans after a 12-month delay. These documents are a very big deal, In short, they describe the pressures on the water environment, they set legally binding objectives for water bodies, and they summarise programmes and measures to achieve those objectives. DEFRA says that the plans are key to delivering the 25-year environment plan's clean and plentiful water goal. But DEFRA's press team took exception to some press coverage of the announcement, so much so that as the rest of us were starting to defrost our turkeys, they were spending Christmas Eve posting a rebuttal on the DEFRA in the media blog. Pippa, you spent some time trying to fact-check this. So what did The Guardian and The Times report that upset DEFRA so much?
1: Yeah. So soon after the plans were signed off, the Guardian and the Times both reported that the target for all water bodies to achieve good chemical and ecological status had been pushed back from 2027 to 2063, um, and this prompted kind of public outcry on social media, on Twitter. People were, you know, very angry seeing that Defra had kind of pushed its pushed its targets down the drain. Um, according to the Guardian article, it said that until Brexit, the UK government was signed up to the water framework directive, which required countries to make sure that all their waters achieved good chemical and ecological status by 2027. But the paper reported that this target had now been pushed back. However, yeah, on Christmas Eve on the blog post, Defra responded and said that this was not true and that the target for good ecological status remained at 2027. so, yeah, that's kind of the main issue that DEFRA had with, with the, the reports and the Times and the Guardian. But what DEFRA did admit is the fact that what has changed is the target for good chemical status, which indeed has been pushed back till 20, 2063. Um, and in the River Basin Management management Documents, DEFRA said that the extended date has been set because of a group of man-made compounds, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, but in short are called PBDEs. Um, which are used in flame retardants and in upholstery, and they're persistent in the environment, which DEFRA says is why the target's been pushed back because an extended natural recovery period is needed. So, when I contacted DEFRA to kind of ask for clarity on this, they explained that the Water Framework Directive allows for time extensions to cover situations where, despite actions to achieve good ecological or chemical status, um, it's expected that recovery will take longer um and in the blog post after explained that this is an issue that countries across the whole of the EU are facing
0: yeah and they, they seem to be saying that, that the the 2063 date isn't isn't actually a a set target the 2027 target still exists but the 2063 date kind of reflects the fact that modeling or analysis suggests that the, those those particular chemicals that I'm not going to try to pronounce either are could, could take that that long to that long to clean up I mean, I, I had a couple of thoughts on this. I, th- I thought it was kind of interesting, given given all the all the all the talk that we've had recently around the the the, the bonfire of retained EU laws. That De- Defer in in that in in it in its rebuttal and, and statement is 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 it pains to say that what it's doing is 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 compliant with the Water Framework Directive, which which is a bit weird, given uh, that it sounds like that's one of the directives that you want So reform or, or water down so I don't know I don't know quite what to make of that and I th- I th- and, the, and the other thing I think that's that's uh, to take away from it is that that I think we all obviously want environmental targets to be as ambitious as as possible but what the kind of position takes in taken in these river basin management plans seem to show us or definitely underlines is that we've got a massive problem with chemical pollution in our rivers and and that um, a lot a lot of the talk about river pollution um completely fair enough is all about about sewage but and to some extent agricultural pollution, but we're we're learning all the time more and more about these horrible toxic chemicals that are that are, we're told are, are ubiquitous in our in our aquatic environment and, and dealing with these is going to be a massive challenge. It's gonna take a a very, very long time. Our next story relates to a very rare thing, um a raptor per- difficult to say this, a raptor persecution prosecution. Um <laughs> And for, um, for for listeners that, who, who are new to the podcast, raptor persecution isn't anything to do with Jurassic Park. Um, that's that's an entirely different type of raptor. This is all about birds of prey, and raptor persecution is a type of wildlife crime that involves the shooting, trapping, and poisoning of of those birds, um, species like head harriers, red kites, peregrines, and owls. Um, and, and under the Wildlife and Countryside Act, killing birds of prey is against the law and is punishable by an unlimited fine and or, or jail sentence, but um, unfortunately, prosecutions are, for want of a better phrase, as well as hen's teeth. Um, so it's very interesting to learn early in a new year of, a, of a, a court hearing in Dorset. Um, Tess, can you please us in on the details?
2: Yeah. Um, I mean, like you say, it's, it's Dorset isn't one we tend to hear about uh, when it comes to raptor persecution. You tend to normally think about kind of the, uh, the uplands and, and the highlands. So but yeah, on last week in, um, in Dorset, a gamekeeper called uh, Paul Scott Allen, he pleaded guilty to seven charges linked to his work as a gamekeeper, um, which included two of possessing part or parts of nine dead buzzards, which is pretty grim, uh, two of failing to comply with the conditions of a shotgun license, uh, and for not having a license for possessing pesticide and insecticides. Um ITV, if, if anyone is interested, has some some RSPB footage of the police search of his home and it doesn't make very uh, pleasant watching, but it does show um, you know, just how, you know, horrible some of this stuff is. Uh, Grizzly is often a word you use when talking about these sorts of crimes.
0: Okay, so the the uh, the offenders pleaded guilty. Um, mm. What 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 happens next is there, there a date for sentencing?
2: Yeah, so he's going to be sentenced on February the sixteenth. and For now, has been released on bail. It's possible he'll get a custodial sentence, and that's possible uh, for for these crimes. But we'll have to wait to find out. They are exceedingly rare to get prosecutions really at all to get things coming to court. Uh, I think because often often as what is said is that they're hard to. They're hard to prosecute because it's hard to get the, the kind of meet the evidential threshold. Um, um but I guess some you could say it's about resources being given to police forces to to go and do those investigations. But this is one where it seems to have actually got somewhere, which is why there's been lots of attention over it.
0: And and you you mentioned earlier, you mentioned about Dorset, and I think according to the RSPB, Dorset is is the county with the second highest number of confirmed raptor persecution incidents. Mm. And um, and and last year there was some, I don't know quite how to say, it, but there was some some interesting goings on. Um, yes, can can you can you briefly, if it's possible, to briefly <laughs> recap what what happened last year? It
2: was quite a twisting tale, but I'll be as brief as possible. Yes, yeah, so last year there was a very high profile case. Uh, Right at the start, there were two white-tailed eagles were found dead in Dorset, and these were birds which had actually been introduced, reintroduced through for a long-term project centered on the Isle of Wight. Um, And one of these birds was confirmed to have been found dead on a shooting estate, um, and subsequent analysis showing that it had about seven times the lethal dose of um, of a rodenticide in it. So it seemed to look like it had been poisoned. then all of a sudden, it seemed that the the investigation had been called off. When I say all of a sudden, about a month or so later. Um, and this was this baffled campaigners totally because, you know, they actually, um, according to a statement put out by RSPB at the time, uh, there'd been a kind of thorough land search planned and uh, this was unexpectedly called off. Um, so Dorset police force's explanation that there wasn't enough evidence, it, it didn't all seem to add up just before this happened, it all got very muddy because the local MP Chris Loder had sparked some controversy by saying, that you know, Dorset's not the place for eagles to be introduced and, you know, saying you didn't want Dorset police to be focusing um, on this sort of thing. You want them focused on county lines um, and that that, yeah, as you can imagine, wasn't met particularly well by conservationists or many, many politicians as well. This case became very uh, high profile for a lot of people. So there's still a lot of unanswered questions about what happened to those eagles, uh, particularly on the shooting estate. And so, yeah, the sentencing of this gamekeeper in Dorset has refocused minds on that case, I would say.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I I thought it was interesting in the RSPB statement that they, they gave a special mention to Claire Dinsdale, who was who was formerly mm. of Dorset Police and, and is now with the um National Wildlife Crime Unit. And the RSPB says that she's an exemplary officer who has devoted her career to tackling wildlife crime. Um what what, what do you what do you make of that, Tess?
2: <laughs> yeah, it is very interesting. Um so at the time of these white-tailed eagle deaths, um Claire Dinsdale was working for for Dorset Police. Um, and she's, you know, she was very highly regarded in her field, and you know, previously received the Queen's Police Medal for her work on rural crime issues. But over the course of last year, after the Dorset police investigation was closed, uh, she left the force after 18 years, and she went to the um, the National Wildlife Crime Unit. As you say, some campaigners, perhaps we can infer the RSPB as one of them, from their statement, took Dinsdale's departure. From The force is a bad sign, and all you know, all was not well in Dorset. So, yeah, I think this will be a story to watch in 2023.
0: Definitely, yeah, it's really, really interesting stuff. Um, and, and we'll certainly, I'm sure, we'll return to it um, sooner rather than later. Mm. For the final story of this episode, Big Green News section, we return to a topic that we discussed quite a lot on the podcast last year, probably more than quite a lot, um, which is, which is kind of poor pay and industrial action at the Environment Agency. Um, we, we, we had a story about this last week. Um, Pippa, can you fill us in on the latest?
1: Yeah, sure. So last Thursday, Unison announced that Environment Agency workers, um, including those responsible for protecting communities from flooding, water pollution, waste fires and fly tipping, will strike on the 18th of January from 8am till 5pm. Um, according to the union, where there is a threat to life or property, such as instance like a major flood, um, officers have agreed to step in in emergency life and limb cover. Um but yeah this still marks a significant moment it's the uh, in unison statement they said it will be the first time in the organisation organisation's history that workers have gone on a strike over pay but maintains that employers failure to give staff a decent pay rise has left them with no alternative
0: okay yeah it does it does sound like a significant sort of escalation in, the, in their action and an action was actually already taking place before before christmas um and we we learned last week that this this action was was having an impact on the way that the agency issues its flood alerts, which is not not a great thing when when kind of seeing some some pictures from around the country now of kind of fairly large areas underwater. Um, mm-hmm. People, what form did that industrial action take, and 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 what has happened to EA's flood, flood alerts?
1: Yeah, so um, separate from the strikes happening in January before Christmas, thousands of environment agency workers um, ruled for an indefinite period strike action. Um, which means they're only working contracted hours, taking all scheduled break and not doing any unpaid work outside of their contracted hours. Um, But ENDS understands that during this period, some Environment Agency workers who are able to continue output flood warnings as usual have been told that flood notices will now be automated across the board regardless. Um, So this is quite interesting because at the time of recording, there are 28 flood alerts where flooding is expected um, and 81 alerts where flooding is possible. And that's an increase from when we wrote the story on this last week. Um, And each flood alert has a line saying that the Environment Agency flood warning system has issued this message based on rising river or tidal levels, but that the messaging is temporarily being automated due to industrial action. Um, But an insider at the Environment Agency explained to ENDS that the alert system will be triggered when the river reaches a certain level of which it's monitored, Um, But under the automated system, warnings will only be issued when a threshold is hit, whereas the manual warnings are often offered in advance by analysing the data alongside weather forecasts. Um, So this could have, you know, a significant impact with the insider expressed concerns to ends that if there was a serious flood, those impacted might not be given enough advance warning. Um, And they kind of express concerns that this could just be what's taken forward and seen as the new normal, regardless of the industrial action.
0: Yeah, that doesn't doesn't sound doesn't sound good at all. Um, just just one one more one more thing to to mention on the on this topic, which is um, that there there was a the story over the Christmas break, um, which which I think raised a few eyebrows, which um, involved some comments made by the EA chief executive Sir James Bevan. Um, so he w- he was according to the Times, he was asked during a call with staff whether he would consider donating his bonus, which is apparently in the region of ten to fifteen thousand pounds, to environment agency staff who were using. Food banks. Um, what, what did he say in response to that test?
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, so um, the Times reported that that well, he basically said uh, he deserves his bonus. Uh, he said he and he said that he and his exec director colleagues ought to be eligible for those things and have the right to accept them if we're offered them. And he continued, "I think we do do tough jobs and do experience some stresses and strains that no one else has to carry. So I wouldn't want to exclude us from performance-related pay." It's a great, great statement.
0: It's a cross he has to bear, isn't it? It's terrible.
2: He's, it's, it's, he's you know, sleepless nights. I'm sure. Um, I mean, I think it would be interesting. It would have been very interesting to see the look on the faces of of those EA staff members who do, you know, have had to resort to using food banks when when he said that. Uh, Fergal Sharkey, um, ever one for a, a good line um you know the, the river campaigner said that Bevan's reality distortion filter seems to be fully charged <laughs> uh, he has presided over a shambolic period in the agency's history demoralizing staff and destroying rivers so there we go
0: fantastic you probably can't can't wait now to, for March to come around and, and sort of be out of there but yeah um, it does seem a bit a bit strange given it was it was kind of last last spring wasn't it where he, he 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 wrote to Secretary of State to kind of ask for more pay and I know Emma Howard Boyd was um the former chair was raising raising these concerns about staff members using food banks so so at one point they were yeah sort of dr- banging a drum for their for their workers but that that seems like a slightly odd odd statement to be making
2: mm, so long as they don't come for their bonuses
0: yeah exactly I have got to draw a line somewhere haven't you
2: yeah <laughs> <laughs> that line is 15 grand
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> Okay, well, on, on that note, that, that, that brings us to the end of our big green news section. and I, I'd like to say thank you to Pippa, um, and Tessa and I are going to stay and talk about biodiversity net gain. So now this is our deep dive section, and Tessa and I are going to delve into biodiversity net gain, a measure contained in the Environment Act that is going to have far-reaching implications for the development industry and others. We have huge unmet housing needs in this country, and the government has ambitious house building targets. Although there is some question as to how committed ministers are to these at the moment following um, a whole whole batch of planning changes that happened before Christmas, which we might may well return to in another episode. So we have this huge unmet housing need, but as well as a housing crisis, we, we have a, a nature crisis. And um, I'm not sure whether we've mentioned this before on the podcast, but the UK is one of the most nature depleted countries in the world. So this is where biodiversity net gain comes in. This is a concept of increasing biodiversity after development has taken place. And the idea is that it delivers more development, but also more nature. The policy is a cornerstone of how the government intends to meet some of its more ambitious nature recovery goals, including the targets to halt the decline of species by 2030. And and it's, it's going to happen quite soon. So from November this year, biodiversity net gain requirements will become mandatory in England, and that will mean that developers must de- deliver a 10% biodiversity net gain on most new developments. But what do house builders really think about the policy? Um, I know, Tess, you've been looking into this and sending out some freedom information requests. Um, what, what what did you ask for exactly?
2: Yeah, so I put in a few requests to see, I wanted to see the consultation responses submitted by some of the, the UK's biggest house builders um, to DEFRA's Biodiversity Net Gain Consultation, which they, they carried out last year. Um, so I asked to see the responses, uh, from some of the biggest ones that includes Barrett, Persimmon, Taylor Wimpey and Bellway. They all turned in billions of profit a year and between them built about 56,000 houses uh, in 2021, uh, uh, building often on large sites. And so I thought, well, biodiversity net game is going to re- impact them in particular. Um, and it'd be interesting to see what position they were taking with DEFRA. And it did turn out to be quite interesting.
0: Fantastic. We'll, 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 come, we'll come on to what the responses said in a in a in a moment, but but the the the, the documents that you you got back were responses to the the, the consultation that mm-hmm. you mentioned, which is on. Net gain regulations and implementation. Um, what, what's yeah. the what's the significance of that consultation, and and has the government responded to it yet?
2: Yeah, well, it's a big one, and no, we haven't. We haven't had the government response. The consultation it, it set out the rules by which developers and local authorities will need to deliver net gain from November this year, as you mentioned. And in particular, what should happen when it's not deemed possible for them to say, you know, develop, the, give that biodiversity gain on the site that they're developing on. So, um, when they might need to make environmental improvements. Uh, elsewhere, off-site or in some cases, purchase credits, and who those those that credits can be purchased from. Um, but yeah, this we don't, you know, this is one of the policies which seems to have fallen foul of this culture of delay, as the environmental audit committee has, has described it as in DEFRA. Um, we just don't have the details yet back back from it, um, but it is a big consultation.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I guess um, there's a lot of different stakeholders that really need to know what's going on there. If, if if we if we've got a November start date for this this thing, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one 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 of the one of the interesting things that I think came out of your your research was where 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 gains happen, whether they're on site or off site. And I think I think the DEF, DEFRA's policy, which is which is I think is supported by by um, sort of green NGOs is is the, the um idea that developers should follow a sequential order when they're when they're planning how to meet biodiversity net gains. So that they must they must with with that with that order they must show how they've tried first to avoid environmental damage before then seeking to deliver the gains through on site mitigation, followed by off site and then and only then through the purchase of credits and I think I think for many green groups and local authorities that they, they they want to keep the biodiversity net gains on or as close as possible development sites as part of the policy because they they view this as a kind of a key a key benefit and social importance of access to to green space. Um but but it's it sounds like some of these house builders have Different view to that.
2: Mm, some of them do certainly. I mean, it's it's, it's important to say some of the FOIs, show, you know, they showed a range of attitudes towards the incoming policy. Like you know, Barrow, which was the, you know the biggest in the country, showed actually quite a lot of willing towards the proposals outlined by DEFRA. Uh, but Barrow aside, the responses of a number of the others do show a, this sort of pushback against the sequential order you just described, and like strong advocacy, you know, going on for the government to to provide cheaper statutory credits. Um, and a, a majority of these big developers that I got this responses back for seem to be seeking basically a lot more flexibility in how and where they deliver biodiversity gains. Belway Homes, in particular, um, they, they write in their, their response, it would, they would, now I'm quoting, strongly advocate for the removal of the sequential approach to delivering biodiversity net gain enhancements. Uh, instead, they would like to see uh, something where all solutions be considered and acceptable in the first instance, uh, to kind of remove issues over the ability of identified housing sites to deliver the number of homes required. So they're basically saying, you know, need to let us do get biodiversity net gains elsewhere. Otherwise, you know, you're, there's going to be holdups in housing and houses might not be built, uh, which for a government which is very aware of its housing crisis, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not what they would want to hear. Um and, we you know, we see Taylor Wimpy also urging to DEFRA to take a more flexible approach um, to where biodiversity net gain can be found, noting that they note that the current metric is heavily weighted towards mitigation in close proximity to the development site. And they recommend this is reviewed to encourage offsite contributions towards the enhancement of identified priority habitats and strategic nature recovery strategies. I mean, I think some some ecologists would probably agree that contributions to larger nature restoration projects is not a bad thing for biodiversity. But I think that's the, that's the thing with this policy that we're seeing is it's trying to do a lot, and that access to nature for people, Uh, whilst you know, if you're only thinking about biodiversity, might not seem that big a deal. Um, the, actually, green groups think it's extremely important, and and the government has you know brought this in into the the, the sequential order so that. People aren't losing their access to green space, and local authorities are very big on it. So it's not a small thing. Uh, but this is what we see a lot of. You know, some of these very big developers are not actually that moved by this particular aspect.
0: Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I think I think there is the the, the on site versus off site thing is, is has been since the policy has been announced a, a key. I suppose it's been a key area of discussion, and I, I think I think people like the Environment Bank. They they mm. I suppose they're in, in the business of, of kind of setting up these kind of. Um, credit schemes but they they would say that um the the idea of having credits would give you the opportunity to kind of open up these these kind of large-scale um nature recovery mm. opportunities but but um not everyone would agree with that i mean it's obviously a good thing to happen but but i think the the um it's really also equally important that local people can mm. see that these gains are happening locally and what one of the i guess one of the other things that kind of links into what you you were talking about just then but the 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 kind of market for credits so there, there's that's going to be another really interesting thing to watch with net gain is is this market which is potentially going to be very large with with scope for some people to make a a load of money out of it and um mm-hmm. from the FOI responses that, that you've received it looks like there's there's a concern from house builders that they they might end up being held to ransom over the cost of these credits and they, they might want the government to kind of step in and provide cheaper ones. Mm. Is, is that is that right?
2: Yeah that is right. Um, kind of comes across fairly strongly in a, in a, a few of the responses I saw um, like biodiversity and again is like supposed to establish this private credit market uh, with the government ones only as a last resort because they don't want to jeopardize this private market. Um, and but so they in this consultation they you know purposefully say we're not going to make them competitive and it's fair we're not in a place at the moment where we're going to have a competitive market. In November, because there's not been enough details published for that to happen. However, it is interesting that a few of the developers are very keen that these statutory credits are a more competitive option. I think going forward, and kind of more into the long term, um, Persman is particularly animated on this, and they invoke the nutrient neutrality crisis when when talking about biodiversity net gain kind of credit pricing. And They suggest that it offers an important lesson in terms of how the market can operate when developers are forced to purchase off-site mitigation with little supply and gaining planning permission is fully reliant on this. And they go on to say it's a critical that safeguards are put in place, which prevent developers being held to ransom over the price of units and credits. And there's potential for, for credit suppliers to collude on price Particularly in strong market areas, and that like that phrase about being held to ransom is one they return to you regularly. And yeah, this this is something that <laughs> this this caught the attention of a few kind of commentators I spoke to because, you know, these firms they they make an awful lot of money, and the idea that they're going to kind of <laughs> be held to ransom is not one that that people have taken too kindly to. No,
0: no, I I. I... Yeah, I, I mean, I, I guess, I guess for the house builders, a lot of it's about their bottom line. But I, mm. I can imagine that, that that's that uh, there, there are probably quite a few people that don't have a huge amount of sympathy to that. For that, um, yeah. what other things of the commentators that you spoke to? How, how have they responded to the um, mm. what the house builders are asking yeah. for? Yeah,
2: well, so I, feel, I spoke to quite a range. I spoke to academics, uh, I spoke to green groups, and from local government representatives. And there is some understanding that the sector needs more clarification, as we've already discussed, so that a credit market can develop. But, and so, so, so Sophie Sue McGasson, who's an ecological economist at uh, Oxford University. He's done lots of work on biodiversity net gain. He told me that, you know, this apparent scaremongering over a kind of market paralysis when the policy comes in uh, due to a lack of units, uh, like Bellway talks about, uh, it just doesn't really match the research that he's done, where he's seen, you know, he's sampled a few councils who've been early adopters of the policy. And he said the vast majority are actually of the vast majority of kind of biodiversity net gain units or mitigation is happening on site within well-planned developments. Although he did note that the reality of how these gains are, are monitored leaves uh, quite a lot to be desired, but let's put that aside for the moment. Um, but uh, kind of, yeah, the, he said that the idea, the whole idea that the, the house building il- industry will be held back by a lack of biodiversity units um, is not borne out in the data of what's happening already. And he said, "You know, if you preach market values, then you also have to preach them when it's not in your interest." Um, and that is the point of competition. And this this came, you know, came from Richard Benwell as well from uh, the Wildlife and Countryside Link. Who I spoke to about this, and you know, he said that you know people people early adopters, people who take this seriously uh, and put in the right plans, and who you are conscientious about it, they you know they they will still do well uh, as developers. And you know, if if people put their you know stick their heels in the ground. Um, those are the ones who you know, maybe won't do so well, um, but that's that's yeah, that's been the kind of reaction I had.
0: It's fascinating, and and, and the house boarders how how, how are they uh, feeling about the fact that their consultation responses are now in the in the public domain?
2: <laughs> well, you know. I don't think I'm that happy. Um, but they, they all defended, they all defended their records on biodiversity net gain, um, biodiversity in general. A Spokesperson for Bellway, uh, said the concerns they'd raised in their response relate to the, uh, the lack of any detailed secondary legislation or guidance from DEFRA and the lack of resource within many local authorities that will likely lead to considerable delays in the planning process. Um, and that is something that they, you know, a number of the, the developers do talk about that. There's an, and not just developers. We've heard this from ecologists. We've heard this from local authorities themselves. That they, you know, how how are local authorities meant to make this happen? Uh, I guess the developers are worried about it from a, a different point of view. They're worried about their bottom lines. The the Belway spokesman added that you know the delivery of biodiversity net gain will require land, and this would be in addition to land required for much needed homes. Uh, then um, the provision of on and off-site community facilities, etc cetera, etc. Cetera. A person and spokesperson said that it supports biodiversity net gain and that a number of its sites are already delivering to or even above the intended standard uh, and that it's its consultation response will sought to of inform the debate about how the government establishes a new a new framework. Um, and, you know, this is going to start sounding quite repetitive, but Taylor Wimpey kind of said the same sort of thing, that it fully supports the principle of biodiversity net gain uh, to ensure sites have more habitats at the point of completion than than they had before building commenced. Um, and that they recognize that on-site mitigation can help build sustainable communities, create a better place to live, uh, which is why they embedded biodiversity net gain into their environment strategy, and that they're going to continue working closely with DEFRA. So that's, you know, they're they're defending themselves and saying that it's all, they're trying to inform debate rather than um, change the direction of the policy. But I think, you know, um, there's a lot more detail in my piece on uh, endsreport.com if anyone wants to go and look at it about um, what the developers are saying about exceptions to biodiversity net gain. It's quite interesting on brownfield sites and um, how long biodiversity net gain sites should have to be maintained for. So, I think I'll leave it up to readers to make their own mind up.
0: Yeah, no, it's um, it's it's fascinating and definitely worth definitely worth a read. Um, and I think it's um, I mean, it's, I'm sure everyone, um, not just house builders, but as I you, you said, ecologists and councils, they 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 want they want they urgently need certainty over how how this policy is going to work later this year. Um, and I'm I'm sure for that reason we'll be um talking about it again sooner rather than later on the on the eco chamber. Um. So uh, so thanks, Tess, for, for sharing your findings on that. Thank you. Now it's time for our Knowing Me, Knowing EU section. Simon Pixton and Alice Villan are here to bring you the latest on green policy from Brussels. In this episode, they are going to be doing a spot of crystal ball gazing and having a stab at telling us what to expect in 2023. Over to you, Alice and Simon.
3: Thanks, Jamie. So to aid us in our crystal gazing... Uh, we're going to be looking at the Commission work programme twenty twenty three, which was published back in October twenty twenty two. The six headline ambitions remain the same, but uh, Simon, can you maybe pull out for us four key pieces of environmental policy that we're likely to hear a lot about in twenty
4: twenty three? I'd I'd be delighted to Alice. Yeah, um, it's going to be probably another quite busy year. So in the first quarter, we've got quite a big one, the Critical Raw Materials Act, which is in response to increased awareness about the EU's strategic vulnerability when it comes to sourcing the raw materials that it believes it needs for the, or that it says it needs for the green and digital transition. So that's things like lithium for batteries, rare earth metals for um, electrical components, superconductors, renewable energy Um, etc etc that's going to be probably a mix of measures to encourage new minds within the EU that's going to be massively controversial as you could imagine Um, and it will also mean more um, uh, how to to source more of these materials from abroad and the kinds of sustainability conditions um, that you might want to re- require of external suppliers is there
3: also is there also going to be uh some measures to do with um recycling and sourcing from the secondary market in terms of from you know like yeah from recycling primarily
4: i'm sure there will also be measures about um recycled products from as well from an environmental and the, the perspective cr-
3: that's something to yeah. keep an eye out for
4: yeah. yeah absolutely i mean also recycling is being addressed through a whole bunch of eu legislation so yeah. things like eco design where this is a major issue and it's going to become ever more ever, ever more of an issue yeah. as, as demand ramps up for this stuff um then we also have in the first quarter very exciting um four member states have been working on a ban for um variety of PFAS so that's pear and polyfluorinated alkyl substances as uh, regular listeners will probably recall these often get described as forever chemicals yeah um, because they don't they don't readily biodegrade and they can um, interact with humans and the environment in unpleasant ways Um, they're using all kinds of products so things like frying pans and waterproof clothing um, but also um, lots of industrial applications so they help wind turbines rotate um among among other uses the, the chemicals industry is always very keen to point that one out um any kind of restriction proposal going to be massively uh controversial particularly from the chemicals industry the thing to look out for there will be what kinds of derogations or exemptions um, the member states propose because there will be probably quite a lot
3: okay so third on the list
4: Third on the list, I would say the soils law proposal is going to be quite an interesting one to look out for. That's set for the second quarter of this year. Although, as always, the commission says these, these dates are subject to change and could well get pushed back. Um, but soils law, the commission tr- tried proposing one um, more than a decade ago, which the member states just sat on, didn't like it, so they, they didn't move it forward. Yeah. Um,
3: but since then, there's been a little bit more momentum on soil issues.
4: Yeah, one would hope, and um, soils now are becoming much more of a political topic. Things like soil erosion, degradation, chemicals pollution in soils and things like that, microplastics, um, these are all relatively big issues now. So I think the Commission is banking on more political momentum behind so a new proposal. Would we say
3: that uh, 2023's terrain is a bit more fertile for soil issues?
4: You could say that, yeah. One could say that. Fourth on the list? Fourth Fourth, well, okay, Alice, I'm going to be cheeky and do 5. Um, fourth I would say in the third quarter, uh, one to look out for is a proposal on sustainable food systems, um, which promises to be kind of wide-ranging, um, tackling potentially a whole bunch of things um r- relating to how Europe produces, consumes and disposes of Disposes of um, food waste. That's that's also probably going to be very controversial. Food yeah. has become much more. I mean, food's always food production agriculture is always a big political topic in the EU, but no more so since um, the outbreak of the war in Ukraine, when suddenly people are talking about food security. Um, the EU published a the European Commission published a study last week saying food security is not an immediate issue for the EU. Uh, the EU is getting enough food. And it sort of it sort of doubled down on a lot of the um, uh, a lot of the sustainable ideas that it has about how how we need to reform the food system. A lot of the member states really really don't like what the commission is doing here, and they're trying everything they can to slow down or stop um, the proposals that are already on the table regarding, say, pesticide reduction. Um, it remains to be seen exactly what the sustainable food systems proposal will contain, but. I would say it's likely to be controversial. Yeah,
3: that tension between food security and sustainability is not going anywhere.
4: Yeah, absolutely not.
3: And so your cheeky fifth?
4: <laughs> well, I would say it's one we've talked about. Um, okay on previous episodes about uh, the reach regulation, which oh, is yeah, of course. Uh, com- commissions, commission's promise for the fourth quarter of, uh, of next year. NGOs are desperately hoping that it will come before then. Yeah. Because it's such a complex file. It's going to take ages to get this one through um, the European yeah. Parliament and through the EU Council. Um, that's going to be a massive file. So for... Um, Bit of clarity. That's the REACH regime. Is basically how the, the main instrument for regulating chemicals in the EU.
3: Yeah, it's twenty. It's a two thousand six regulation. It's the nineteen oh seven slash two thousand six regulation. So it's been on the cards for you know, it's it's sixteen years old or seventeen years yeah. old soon.
4: And and uh, and I think uh you talk to anyone from the from the green groups and from industry, and they they'll all tell you that they're part of the of the regulation that could do with revising. Oh, yeah, um, Absolutely. I spoke to people quite recently about the authorizations pillar of the regulation in particular, which I think everyone agrees uh doesn't isn't really fit for purpose at the moment and does need um something doing to it. Um obviously opinions massively differ on on, on what it should <laughs> be.
3: Okay, so the Commission work program this year has apparently 116 pending priority proposals. That's across all uh, topics, not just the environment all policy
4: areas. Okay. Yeah.
3: So compared to there were 76 last year, so 116. Uh, what's one of those? Maybe in the environmental sectors.
4: I would say, in terms of the proposals that have already been published and are going through the normal legislative process, definitely the the Fit for 55 package. The remaining files that haven't yet been agreed. That's going to be the big focus, um, at least for the first six months. So we had a press conference on Monday with um, the Swedes. So the Swedish government has just taken over the rotating presidency of the um, EU Council. And Swedish officials were confirming that they really hope to finalize almost all of the files that are outstanding in the Five package, which is, um, uh, for those who don't know, relating to basically the eu's climate and energy policy and it's to bring eu greenhouse gas emissions um below 55 uh, it's to cut eu greenhouse gas emissions by 55 percent by 2030 um they, they reckon they can pretty much finalize all of the half dozen remaining files except for um one on energy taxation so the energy taxation directive which uh You won't be surprised at it here. Member States absolutely hate um, and they don't want to do anything about it. And it's the only file within the package that the European Parliament doesn't have a formal say over. So this is just down to member states um, because taxation is um, seen as one that only the member states have competence over. So that's certainly going to keep us busy for the first half of the year. It could well be that some of these files stretch out um, um, beyond that, depending on you know, how the negotiations between MEPs and member states go.
3: Excellent. Lots to talk about in 2023. So until next time, back to you, Jamie.
4: That brings us to the
0: end of this episode of the Eco Chamber. Thank you to Pippa Neal, Tess Colley, Simon Pixton, and Alice Villan. If you're interested in hearing more about any of the stories we've been discussing today, please head over to endreport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and we'll see you next time.